Amen. I invite you to take your copy of Scripture and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and I'm going to read for us verses 1 through 11. Uh, We're in a series in 1 Corinthians, and in particular, we're looking right now at chapters 12 through 14 on spiritual gifts. And so uh, this morning, I'm going to read for us verses 1 through 11, and then we will focus uh, on verses 7 through 11. Verses 7 through 11. If you're using one of the Bibles that's provided for you in the chair there, uh, you'll find our passage on page 959. Paul writes, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit, and there are varieties of service, but the same Lord, and there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. To one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the same Spirit, or by one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as He wills. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we're grateful for Your Word, and we pray now that Your Word would be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Father, we pray that we would treasure Your Word in our hearts and that You would open our eyes to see wondrous things in your book. So, Father, teach us in these moments. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Fill us with your Holy Spirit that we might clearly understand and receive your word for your glory. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Well, as we continue our study in 1 Corinthians, in particular focus on spiritual gifts, we see this morning that Paul provides us with a principle Then he illustrates that principle, and then we want to apply the principle. And so that'll be our outline this morning. First of all, we'll see the principle. Secondly, we'll see the principle illustrated. And third, we will apply the principle, the principle applied. So first of all, look there in verse 7, and we see the principle. The principle there in verse 7 is this. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So there's the principle. It's a simple principle, but it's a sweet truth. The Spirit gives spiritual gifts to the church for our good. That's the principle. Now, as we think about spiritual gifts, it's vital for us to understand that what the Spirit is doing in spiritual gifts, He is doing for our good, for the common good. If you have children, I wonder, do you enjoy giving your children good gifts. I imagine you do. 
Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, verse 11, If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Now, I have several children. I love to give my children good gifts, but I also have to admit that I am selfish. Um, I remember Paul Tripp, who's a biblical counselor, talking about getting ice cream for his wife one time. And uh, he and his wife were upstairs. I think they were watching a movie or something. And so uh, Dr. Tripp says, well, I'll go and get us some ice cream. And so he goes downstairs and he gets a couple of cups out and he's filling them with ice cream. And then just kind of unconsciously, he's not even thinking about it, he gets the two cups and he starts to go back up the stairs to the two cups and he finds himself examining the two cups to see which one has more ice cream in it. Yeah. He's walking up the stairs, it's like he's weighing the cups, you know? And, and, he, and he catches himself midway, like going up the stairs and he thinks to himself, what in the world am I doing? This is the woman that I've been married to for decades. They've been married like 40 years or something like that. We've had children together. Uh, we've faced the ups and downs of life. We've faced the challenges of ministry. And here I am weighing the cups of ice cream to see if I can get the most. And, and, and we're, we're all like that, right? Whether it's with our wives or our children or a friend or whoever it might be, we're like counting the sprinkles, right, to see how, if we can get the most. And what Jesus says here is, listen, if you are selfish, if you are inherently, naturally selfish, and you love to give your children good gifts, how much more can you trust that God, who is absolutely void of selfishness and full of love, delights to give his children good gifts? And these gifts that Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 through 14, these spiritual gifts, they are good gifts gifts that God delights to give to his children for our good. We see here in the passage that we receive these good gifts both individually and corporately. So we receive them individually. You notice there in verse 7 he says, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit. So each of us receives a gift from the Spirit to be ministered in the context of the local church. But then we also receive these gifts corporately. That is, we receive them by experiencing them through others. So he goes on in the passage to say, each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So these gifts come to us through others as they exercise their gifts, and we are the beneficiaries of their ministry. Whether it be a word of encouragement or an act of service, or a teaching, or an expression of hospitality. All of these are gifts that are coming to us through others that have been given by the Spirit for our good and our edification. So here we see in this verse that the Spirit is making Himself known. The Spirit is displaying Himself. The Spirit is manifesting Himself through the gifts that He gives us for the common good of the church. And we need to understand this because if we don't understand this, we will miss out. If you don't understand what the Spirit is up to in giving the church spiritual gifts, you will miss out on so much goodness that God has for you. 
The goodness that he has for you in giving you a gift so that you might minister it to others. And the goodness he has for you in others expressing their gifts in your life so that you might receive them and be benefited from them and be encouraged and strengthened and flourish and thrive. So that's the principle. The principle stated in verse 7 is that the Spirit gives spiritual gifts to the church for our common good. Now in verses 8 through 10, and this is our second point, now in verses 8 through 10, we see that the principle is illustrated. The principle illustrated. Look there in verse 8 and we read these words. To one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another faith by the same Spirit. To another gifts of healing by one Spirit. To another the working of miracles. To another prophecy. To another the ability to distinguish between Spirits. To another various kinds of tongues. To another the interpretation of tongues. So here in these verses, Paul takes the principle in verse 7 and he provides us with nine examples or illustrations of the manifestations of the Spirit. So in verse 7, Paul says the Spirit gives, he manifests himself, he gives you spiritual gifts for the common good. And then in the following verses, he illustrates that by speaking of specific examples, illustrations of these gifts for the common good. Now, a number of attempts have been made to group these gifts, to categorize them. And the the way that uh, these gifts are most popularly grouped or categorized is to divide them between those gifts that are more natural or ordinary and those gifts that are more spectacular or supernatural. Now, even this division has some problems, but this is the most popular way to think about these gifts. So if you divide the gifts this way, these nine gifts, the first three gifts would be those gifts that people think of as being more natural or ordinary. The gift of knowledge, the gift of wisdom, and the gift of faith. The following six gifts would be categorized as those gifts that are more supernatural or spectacular. So here you have the gifts of healing, miracles, prophecy, distinguishing between spirits, tongues, and interpretation of tongues. Now, as many of you know, there's a, been a long-standing debate in the history of the church over whether or not these more spectacular supernatural gifts have ceased or whether they continue today. So there's one group of folks that would say that these more spectacular gifts, that they were operative, they were functional, obviously in the ministry of Jesus, in the ministry of the apostles during the New Testament church. But after the death of the apostles, these gifts ceased and they no longer exist in the life of the church today. So they're referred to as cessationists because they say the gifts have ceased. There's another group of people, though, they're referred to as continuationists. And they would say, no, the gifts have not ceased. They would acknowledge that, yes, during the ministry of Jesus in the time of the apostles, God was doing something unique. And so these gifts may have been expressed in a more heightened way. But that there is still an expression of these gifts that continue today in the life of the church. They would be referred to as continuationists. The gifts continue today. Now, as I've looked at this subject and studied it many times before and even studied it for this series here, I would have to say that I think it's very difficult to make a biblical argument for cessationism. The idea that the gifts have ceased. Somebody likes that. 
I'm sure there's others that may not, but somebody likes that. (laughs) So in that sense, I would say I'm a continuationist. But I would also want to say that I'm a very conservative and cautious continuationist, okay? And what I mean by that is, and and there's a lot of people that feel this way, the reason why I want to say I'm a very conservative and cautious continuationist is because there are so many modern examples of abuses and distortions and counterfeits of these spectacular and supernatural gifts. And so we need to be very careful and cautious. There's actually a group of people that have kind of carved out a middle space. And they say, you know, I don't fully feel comfortable being identified as a cessationist. And I don't fully feel comfortable being identified as a continuationist. I would identify myself as open but cautious. Open to these gifts being expressed in the church today, continuing in the church today. But very cautious in terms of what that actually looks like. And that's probably where... I would feel most comfortable. With that in mind, though, we could, we could say so much more about that. The arguments for continuationists, the arguments for cessationists. I'll probably be saying more about those things as we go through these series. But I just wanted to give a brief synopsis of where I'm coming from. And now we need to look at some of these examples. Look, first of all, here at this example of wisdom and knowledge. Paul speaks of the gift of wisdom and knowledge. So there in verse 8, he says, For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. Now, these two gifts are closely associated with one another, wisdom and knowledge, but there is a distinction to be made. As we think about someone who possesses the gift of knowledge, we think of one who particularly loves and studies and knows the Scriptures and Christian doctrine. If you want to look at a New Testament example of one who possessed the gift of knowledge, I think Apollos fits that um, example well, or or, or, or is a good example for us. So in the book of Acts, Luke is speaking of Apollos, who was a leader in the early church, and he describes Apollos this way in Acts chapter 18, verse 24. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. Some translations translate that he was mighty in the scriptures. The New International Version actually translates that verse. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the Scriptures. And so listen, we know from the Bible that we should all read the Scriptures, we should love the Bible, we should know our Bibles, but we also recognize that there are some who have a particular passion for it, a particular gift, a particular knack for it. And they love to study the Scriptures and they know the Scriptures. And listen, my friends, when someone possesses that gift, it is a blessing to the church. The Spirit has given that gift, a gift of knowledge for our common good. As we think about a gift of wisdom, the gift of wisdom is the ability to rightly apply the truth of God's Word to particular relationships or circumstances in life. It's interesting that Paul in this list of gifts starts out with the gift of wisdom and the gift of knowledge because we know that the church in Corinth loved wisdom. If you were here for our series, you remember that when Paul opens up this letter to the Corinthians, he talks about their love for wisdom in the first uh, four chapters or so. 
But Paul challenges their understanding of wisdom. Paul says the problem with the Corinthians is that they have a worldly understanding of wisdom. That their sense of wisdom is a sense of power and might and strength and notoriety. And Paul says instead of that kind of worldly wisdom, you need the wisdom of the cross. The wisdom of the cross that declares it is more blessed to give than to receive. The wisdom of the gospel that led Jesus to declare that he came not to serve, not to be served, but to serve. The wisdom of the gospel that declares that Jesus saves us not by living, but by dying. The wisdom of the gospel that says, if a man saves his life, he will lose it. But if he loses his life for Jesus' sake, he will save it. You see, this is the wisdom of the gospel. This is God's wisdom. In the world's eyes, it seems upside down, but in God's economy, it's right side up. This is the wisdom that Paul is speaking of. And it seems from the letter that he writes to the Corinthians that there was a severe lack of wisdom among them. You might remember back in chapter 6, Paul talks about the Corinthians, how they were fighting with one another and they were taking one another to court and they were suing each other in public. And Paul chastens them in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 5, when he says, Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? You know, we're all called to be peacemakers. The Bible says that if, if possible, we are to live at peace with all people. Inasmuch as it depends upon us, we are to live at peace with all people. But some people we know just have a particular gift, ability. When they get into a situation, maybe there's two or three or four people that are crossed up. Maybe there's some conflict going on that they can speak a word of wisdom into that. A word of truth that brings clarity and leads many times to resolution. That, my friends, is a gift to the church. When God blesses people with a gift of wisdom, the practical knowledge to know how to apply God's word to particular relationships and circumstances of life, that is a gift to the church. So the first example we see here is the gifts of wisdom and knowledge. Let me just say this as well, though, before I move on from these gifts. One thing that's important to know as well is that when we talk about the gifts of wisdom and knowledge, it is not to be associated with just synonymously like they're the same thing with being highly educated, okay? So there are some people who might think, well, you know, I didn't graduate from high school or I didn't get to go to college or I don't have a master's degree or whatever it might be. So obviously I don't have the gift of wisdom. I don't have the gift of knowledge. My friends, that is not the case. Education could be helpful when it comes to the gift of wisdom and knowledge, but the two are not synonymous. I think about actually Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who was the most influential English-speaking preacher in the history of the world. He ministered in London in the 1800s. And Spurgeon never went to college and never went to seminary. And not only that, but Spurgeon attributed much of his early theological education to a poor cook. It's wonderful. Listen to what Spurgeon writes in his autobiography. He says, quote, the first lessons I ever had in theology were from an old cook in the school of Newmarket. She was a good old soul and used to read the gospel standard. She liked something very sweet indeed, good, strong Calvinistic doctrine. But she lived strongly as well as fed strongly. 
Many a time we have gone over the covenant of grace together and talked of the personal election of the saints, their union to Christ, their final perseverance, and what vital godliness meant. Listen to this. She, in Spurgeon writes, And I do not believe that I have learned more from her, and I do believe that I have learned more from her than I should have learned from any six doctors of divinity of the sort we have nowadays, end of quote. So Spurgeon says, as a young boy, I used to go to this place and there was this old cook. You know who I learned most of my theology from? Her, not doctors of divinity. And listen to what I'm saying here. Spurgeon, I think it's fair to say, had the gift of knowledge. He had the gift of wisdom. He was a prolific preacher and writer and his sermons were sent all over the world. But you know what? That cook also had the gift of knowledge and the gift of wisdom. In varied and diverse ways, we talked about that last week. It is expressed in different ways. But oh, my friends, what a blessing that gift that the cook had was to Charles Haddon Spurgeon and through Spurgeon to the church worldwide as a whole. The gift of knowledge, the gift of wisdom is not synonymous with being highly educated. But it means that an individual has a particular love, a particular passion, a particular desire to know the scriptures, and they know them, and by God's grace, they apply them well. What a blessing to the church. The second example is the gift of faith, the gift of faith. Look there in verse 9, and we read these words. To another, faith is given by the same Spirit. Now here, Paul obviously is not talking about saving faith, okay? And the reason we know that is because all Christians possess saving faith. You say, well, what is saving faith? Saving faith is placing our trust and our confidence in Jesus Christ who died for our sins so that we could be forgiven and was raised so that we could have eternal life. That's what saving faith is. And every true Christian possesses saving faith. They've placed their trust in Jesus. But Paul is talking about a different type of faith here. It's a faith that believes and trusts God for great things, even in the face of trials and difficulties and seeming impossibilities. Jesus speaks of this faith in Matthew chapter 17, verse 20, when he says, For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to the mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Paul actually picks up on this idea just a few verses later in chapter 13, verse 2, when he speaks of men and women who have faith so as to remove mountains. And as we look at the, we survey church history, we realize that there are some individuals throughout the history of the church who have emerged as having unique gifts of faith. We think about an individual like George Mueller, who lived in the 1800s and he lived in Bristol, England. He pastored the same church there for 66 years. And while he was pastoring that church, he also started five large orphanages. It is estimated that he ministered through those orphanages to over 10,000 orphans in his lifetime. And here's the thing about Mueller. In doing all that ministry to these orphans who had no resources, who had no money, George Mueller never, never asked for a dime to support his ministry. Mueller just had this deep conviction, this deep gift of faith in which he believed that God was going to provide for the ministry. 
so that he did not even have to ask, but he would simply pray and the Lord would reveal the needs of the ministry and burden people's hearts and would provide. It's estimated if you do a conversion to modern currency that during George Mueller's lifetime, he received 7.5 million American dollars in support of the ministry to the orphans. And there's just story after story after story where Mueller and the orphans would be on the brink of not having what they needed. There were necessities that they needed. And God, in the right time, the exact moment, would provide. There's one story of Mueller when he was... uh, he had the children and, and he was uh, going, they needed to have breakfast one morning. They didn't have anything to give the children for breakfast. And so Mueller said he was going to take a walk. And he went and took a walk and he was praying to the Lord and he was asking the Lord that he would provide. And Mueller got so caught up in his prayer and so caught up in asking the Lord for his provision that he forgot where he was going and he took a turn down a wrong street. And as he started to walk down that street, he bumped into an old acquaintance someone that he hadn't seen for some time. And Mueller, even in that moment, never expressed his need or the need that the orphans had, but that individual that he hadn't seen for some time was burdened to give him a gift. He gave him five pounds, and the five pounds was exactly what he and the children need for breakfast that morning and to sustain them for the next several days. And there are stories like that from Mueller's life over and over and over again. Hundreds, even thousands of prayers that were answered in his life because he had a particular gift of faith. Listen, as I think about the gift of faith, I can't help but think, and even in the last couple of years, that God in his mercy and grace granted us as a church something akin to the gift of faith. You know, a couple of years ago, we started having this whole discussion about Uh, Our church is merging, Berea Baptist Church and Crawford Avenue Baptist Church at that time. Sorry, I keep bumping this thing. And there were all these challenges before us. How would you merge a suburban church and an inner city church? How are you going to bring these things together? And some people even thought, there's no way that this could work. And during that season of time when we were trying to make a decision, we declared certain points of time that we would set aside for fasting and prayer. And we sought the Lord and we prayed and we asked that he would give us clear direction and clear guidance, that he would move and he would work. And my friends, look at what the Lord has done. Amen? And we can rejoice in that. And we recognize now that there is so much more to be done. We're gathered here on Sunday mornings and we're worshiping together and that's a good thing. But we want to be more of a constant and continual presence in this neighborhood. We want our gatherings on Sunday morning to be more diverse and more of a reflection of the neighborhood we're in and the larger community we're in. Even as we think beyond our immediate community here, do you know that one of our goals, one of our ambitions as a church is that God would raise up a hundred missionaries from Crawford Avenue and send them out to the nations? We say, how can that be done? That seems impossible. But listen, my friends, I trust that there is some, some here this morning that when you hear that, something just kind of wells up inside of you and you think, we can do that. With man, it's impossible, but with God, all things are possible. And listen, that's a gift of faith. And I want to encourage you to stoke that faith, exercise that faith. We as a church need that faith because listen, when you exercise your faith, it strengthens our faith. Continue to pray. 
Continue to seek the Lord. Continue to ask God for great things so that he might do the seemingly impossible among us. What a gift this is to the church. The gift of faith. The third example we see here, first is a gift of encouragement and wisdom, or I'm sorry, a gift of knowledge and uh, wisdom. Secondly is a gift of faith. Third is a gift of healings and miracles. I'm putting these two together, healings and miracles. Look there in the text and we read these words in verse 9. To another gifts of healing by one spirit, to another working of miracles. Now, as we talk about this debate between cessationists and continuationists, this is one point where there is still debate within the church, how this is to be understood. But let me say that I don't think, at least in particular as it relates to these things, I don't think there's as much separation between cessationists and continuationists as much as we might originally think. So even cessationists would say, those who say that the gifts have ceased, these miraculous gifts have ceased, they would say, yes, God still does miracles today. God still does healings today. But what we're saying is ceased is that God has not given the particular gift of healing to one individual so that it comes through that individual. That's what we're saying is ceased. A continuationist would say, yes, God does miracles today and he heals people today, but he oftentimes chooses to do it through an individual so that they become the channel through which another experiences God's healing. Okay? There's not as much separation between those two things. And one of the things that we need to point out here in this text is that actually when Paul speaks of the gift of healing and the working of miracles, and this is important to note, he states it in the plural. So he says gifts, plural, of healings and workings, plural, of miracles. Now that's significant because some people, particularly that are cessationists, keep following me here, okay? Some people who are cessationists would say that there is a singular gift of healing and it's a permanent gift. So that one, when one receives that gift, they receive it, they have it for the rest of their lives and therefore they should be able to heal at will, at any time, anyone that they choose to heal. And so some people will even say, well, if someone has the gift of healing, why don't they go to the local hospital and heal everybody in the hospital, empty out the hospital, you know? And then they kind of drop the mic, right? Because that's like the, the final argument, right? Nobody obviously has that gift. Nobody can do that. But listen, I would just say that's a false criteria for assessing the gift of healing in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul who wrote this letter was obviously a man who had been given the gift of healing. We read of a number of healings that take place through the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. But the Apostle Paul was not able to heal anyone he wanted to at any time he wished. In fact, there are a number of examples of this in the New Testament. We think about uh, Timothy who was an understudy to the Apostle Paul. He was his son in the faith. Paul had invested a tremendous amount in Timothy. And he writes a letter to Timothy, who was a pastor. And in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 23, Paul says to Timothy, Use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Now, how practical is that? Timothy's got some stuff going on with his stomach. He's got some other ailments going on. We don't know exactly what it was. And Paul does not say, oh, don't worry about that, Timothy. I'll take care of it. You're healed. 
Paul doesn't say that. That doesn't mean that Paul didn't possess the gift of healing. Rather, Paul says, wine can help with that. This is kind of medicinal wisdom. He says, wine can help with that. Drink some wine and it'll be good for your stomach. Essentially, Paul's saying to Timothy, listen, take some Pepto-Bismol, lay off the nachos, you'll be okay. Okay? Not only that, but Paul writes, to Tro- Paul writes in regards to Trophimus. Trophimus was a co-laborer with Paul in the gospel. And in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 20, Paul says, I left Trophimus, who was ill at Miletus. Now, this is interesting. Paul goes into Miletus. He has interaction with his co-laborer, Trophimus. They're good friends. They've been in the ministry together. Trophimus gets sick. Paul has the gift of healing. Why doesn't Paul heal him? Paul says, when I went to Miletus and I met Trophimus, at some point along the way he got ill. I left Miletus and he was still ill. That doesn't mean that Paul didn't possess the gift of healing. Rather, what we see here, and a number of people have pointed to this, is that the gift of healing here is referred to in the plural. They're gifts of healing. And so perhaps the idea here is not that one receives a permanent gift of healing, that once you receive it, you possess it, you can exercise it at will, but rather the idea that this gift is occasional, that it comes upon someone in particular instances and situations in which they are empowered to be a channel through which another person experiences God's healing. And so an individual may pray for 10 different people and nine of them don't get healed. But then there's that one occasion where God grants the gift of healing. And in that moment, through that individual praying for them or a group of people praying for them, someone experiences the healing touch of God. Let me just say, because I think this is really important for us to say as a church. We are a church that believes in the sovereignty of God, okay? So we're a church that believes that God rules and reigns over all things, that everything that comes into our lives, including sickness and illness and disease, comes into our lives through His loving, caring hand. Nothing happens by accident. But we might be tempted... And acknowledging that God is a sovereign God, that when we experience illness or sickness, to think that the only response to illness and sickness is to submit to the will of God. To simply submit. In fact, we might wonder, is it even sinful? Is it presumptuous to pray that God would heal? Well, listen, in as much as we are a church that believes in the sovereignty of God, we also need to be a church that declares our God is able to heal. Miraculously, supernaturally heal. We see it in the ministry of Jesus, right? As he heals individuals over and over and over again, which is a foretaste of his kingdom, which is to come in all its fullness when he returns, where there will be no sickness and no disease and no illness and no death. We see it in the ministry of the apostles when they heal people at various times as God empowers them and gives them grace to do so. We see it in Corinth where Paul tells the church in Corinth as a whole there are gifts of healing. And he doesn't seem to limit that to the apostles or even to the elders of the church. We see it in the book of James where James writing to the church in James chapter 5 verse 14 and 15 says, Is anyone among you sick? 
Are you sick? He gives specific instructions. Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. God is able to heal. And listen, we, we point to the Apostle Paul. We say, yeah, but look at Paul. Like He's given the thorn in the flesh, right? And what does Paul do when he's given the thorn in the flesh? We don't know if it was a physical ailment, but many people believe that it was. What does Paul do? He submits to the will of God. And in submitting to the will of God, he learns this amazing truth that in his weakness and in his insufficiency, he experiences the grace and the power of God. So we say, that's what we should do. We should submit to the will of God. Sorry, I did that again. <laughs> and in one sense, that's true. But you know what Paul did before he submitted to the will of God? He prayed. He prayed three times that God would heal him, that God would deliver him. And so in Paul's mind, at least, there is not a dichotomy between believing that God heals and yielding ourselves and submitting ourselves to the sovereign will of God. My friends, we need to be a church who embraces both. We need to be a church that believes that our God is a great God, the living God who acts supernaturally in this world. And we need to ask him and expect God works supernaturally among us. Bring healings by your grace and mercy. And then whatever he chooses to do, let us submit. Let us yield to his will and trust him in all things. And listen, if he heals, we may, we may characterize it differently. We may frame it differently. The cessationists may say, well, you know, this is God sovereignly, providentially working through the regular means of grace or something like that. And the continuationists might say, well, through that individual that was praying for that person, they became a channel through which the other individual experienced God's healing touch. That's fine. But let's just all agree that our God is sovereign. And our God, when he chooses to do so, delights to heal his people. Now, the next four gifts are typically clustered together. They all refer to prophecy and the speaking in tongues. And so I am not actually going to address those gifts this morning because when we get to chapter 14, the whole chapter is devoted to prophecy and speaking in tongues. And so we're going to talk about those when we get to chapter 14. But here we see the principle illustrated in these gifts, in the gifts of knowledge, and the gifts of wisdom, and the gifts of... Um, miracles and the gifts of healing and the gifts of faith, this principle that God has given the church spiritual gifts for our common good. The third point is this, very briefly, the principle applied. Look there in verse 11 and we read these words. All these are empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Now, if you go back through verses 8 through 11, you will notice that on five occasions, Paul attributes the Spirit to giving these gifts. So look at verse 8. To one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, to another the utterance of knowledge, according to the same Spirit. There's another time. Verse 9, to another faith by the same Spirit. There's another one. To another gifts of healing. Here's another. By one Spirit. Verse 10, to another working of miracles, to another prophecy, and so forth. Um, interpretation of tongues. And then verse 11, all these empowered by one in the same spirit. 
who apportions to each one individually as he wills. So over and over again, Paul is saying the Spirit is giving these gifts. The Spirit is giving these gifts. Here's what Paul wants you to know. When it comes to spiritual gifts, the Spirit has your good in mind. He's giving gifts. He's so generous. He's giving gifts to his church for your good. And so what are we to do with that? Just two quick applications. One, I would say, share the goodness. Share the goodness. Now, we talked about this last week, like the person who has the gift of hospitality. Maybe they're particularly good at like, you know, baking and cooking or so forth and making their house welcoming and a a, a nice place that people want to come into. But they don't ever invite anyone over. Well, that's not cool, right? Like if you got the gift of hospitality, we we want in on that. Like share the goodness, right? And, and any gift that you think about, whether it's the gift of mercy or service or encouragement or teaching or leadership, share the goodness. One author has written, quote, If the purpose of gifts is for the common advantage, then no member is given anything that is not to be given for the whole body of Christ. God has given you goodness to share. And I would encourage you to share it. Invest in this local body, invest in relationships, and look for opportunities and needs to serve and to bless and to encourage and help. Share the goodness you have been given for the common good. The second application is this. Get in on the goodness. Get in on the goodness. You know, one of the things that we talk about here at Crawford Avenue is that when we come to church, when we invest in a local community, we shouldn't just have the sense of like, I'm here to get something. But we should have a sense of I'm coming to give. I want to serve others. I want to bless others. Even on Sunday mornings we gather together. In terms of the way we think about membership here at the church, we want to serve, we want to give. But listen, in making that point, I want to make it clear. It is not wrong, though, as you think about worship on Sunday morning or as you think about your commitment to this local body, it is not wrong to receive. God has given you the church for your good, and he has so much good for you through the local body. Gifts of service and mercy and encouragement and teaching and preaching and all types of gifts that he wants you to receive as a blessing, as a gift from his hand. And so position yourself to receive it. Place yourself in a community of faith. Invest yourself and place yourself where you might receive the good gifts that the Spirit has for you through His people, the church. Let's pray. God, we thank You and praise You for Your Word. We thank You and praise You for how generous You are, how You love to give us good gifts. And Lord, we thank You for the gifts that You have given to each one of us. And we thank You for the gifts that You have given us in one another as we experience your ministry through the body of Christ. Father, give us understanding in these things. Lord, I pray that we would be eager to use our gifts for the good of others. And I pray, Father, that each person here this morning would know the blessing of your local church, would know the goodness that is present for them, that is a reality for them in the body of Christ, that they would connect themselves to your church and receive all that you have for them through your people. Lord, we love you and thank you for your grace. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen.